I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello? Hello? Podcast Network Asia. Welcome to She Talks Peace a podcast that highlights the role of women peacebuilders around the world in bringing lasting peace and security to their communities. Eavesdrop into their conversations and get to know their stories. From the Philippines to Malaysia, from Indonesia to Palestine, from Myanmar to the United States, their dreams and their hopes for a world without violence and a world where every woman and girl can be whoever she wants to be. Hosted by Amina Rasul Bernardo, President of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, and Dina Zaman, a Malaysian journalist and co-founder of Iman Research. This is She Talks Peace. Salam, dear listeners. This is Amina Rasul of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, welcoming you to She Talks Peace and my co-host. Salam, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. She Talks Peace. This is Dina Zaman of Iman Research Malaysia, greeting you from Kuala Lumpur. Hi, Dina. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, things have slowed down a bit politically. Things have also eased up, so I'm able to have my ice cream and meet friends for coffee. <laughs> uh, strict SOPs, of course, but there's some semblance of normal life. What about you? Uh, thinking of fun. Uh, normal life. I have been actually thinking about that dreadful day, 9-11, because the 20th anniversary was yesterday, right? It has been two decades since that attack on the United States. I was actually in Washington, D.C. at that time, Dina. Uh The United States Institute of Peace had invited me to be one of their Jennings senior fellows. And, and I was the first Filipino to to join. Great. That was a one-year fellowship. Right. So my kids uh, joined me in the D.C. area. And on that day, we were actually planning to do a tour of D.C., including the Pentagon, because we had never seen the Pentagon before. And while we were having breakfast, the news was on, and the news flashed the scene from the Twin Towers, which was in flames, and later the Pentagon. So we were glued to the TV set for the whole day, And we watched with horror as the Twin Towers collapsed. And even more in horror, when we heard the news say that it was the Mm Al-Qaeda responsible for the attacks. And I remember thinking, today the Muslim world is in grave peril. My eldest son actually shaved his beard that morning. So that he would not be, you know, tagged. And the thing is, the aftershock of 9-11 
on us in the Muslim world not only has been traumatic, but it has been continuing. Where were you, Dina, and what were you thinking on that dreadful, dreadful day? Amina, the day that happened, my day was not as illustrious as yours. I was married then, and my then husband and I were always arguing over the television. Uh-huh. He would want to watch CNN, and I would want to watch HBO. And I remember this. Oh, forgive me, dear listeners. I, I was addicted to sex in a city because I've always wanted to live and work in New York. <laughs> okay, see? I'm a total bimbo. But anyway, he came down and said, I want to watch the news. So we were fighting over the remote and we clicked on CNN. And I still remember saying, okay, I'll only give you 30 seconds. <laughs> and then we saw it and I said, I'm not going to watch Sex and City. And it was frightening. I mean, yeah. we thought it was an action film on CNN. Yeah. And at that time, I still remember the internet was very new to Malaysia. So we were able to email to friends. And I had this friend whom I've lost touch with. She is married to an American living in New York. And they were on a rooftop with their friends when they saw that. And he also thought it was an action film being, you know, be, being recorded. So when they found out, my God, it was really a terrorist attack, they ran. So, yeah, that was the day that changed everything for all of us. It was really scary days. And one of the positive things that I experienced when I was in in the D.C. area at the time, in my neighborhood where I lived in, there was a mosque walking distance there was a Baptist church. There was a synagogue on the right. same street. And mm-hmm. you know, Dina, the yeah. people from the synagogue and from the churches, they surrounded the mosque and protected it for several days. Right. And that gave me some, some hope, you know, some comfort, because right. I thought, in spite of what has happened and the outcry against um, these Muslim terrorists, there were still reasonable people who believed that this was the work of a few terrorist criminals. And you could not blame people, billions of uh, people who believe in, in one faith for the acts of a few. But Dina, have you, you and I, we've been really working on the aftermath of 9-11, right? Because of its impact on on ASEAN. And you have done a lot of research on on what has been happening in ASEAN since then, especially on uh, Malaysia. Maybe you can... Tell me a little bit more about it because I, I've been really interested in this paper that you you wrote, <laughs> which you very intriguingly right. said, Lipstick Jihad. What's that all about? Okay, that title will probably go with me to the you know to the end of my life, to the grave. <laughs> it's a good title. Yeah. But um, yeah, let me tell you this. I, I would like to think. With what happened on 9-11, right, 20 years ago, you know, I would like to think that that probably planted the seeds of the world, you know, for us, right, Mm -hmm. for us, Muslim women and myself personally. Because shortly after that, I joined Mm musicuni.com. I had a column called I Am Muslim, and basically it was a fun, fun column, just interviewing people, how it felt to be Muslim, 
right? But at that time, and that was just like fresh from the reformacy era, yeah? Mm. I, you know, being a journalist, you know, you're just never at home. You're just here, there, everywhere, you know? And I started seeing a lot of trends. And when we all created Iman, I started doing this properly, yeah? Where I think that in Malaysia, there is an identity, a religious identity crisis where during reformacy, many Muslim Malaysians felt that, you know, the state had failed them as Muslims uh, and also an Islamic country. And this is something which keeps coming back again and again and again. So a lot of Malay and uh, Muslim Malaysians look towards overseas for their idea of Islam. Right. The thing is when... ISIS, the militant, not ISIS, I think, in Malaysia, came and made its presence known to Malaysia. And that was in 2015, 2016, yeah? By then, you know, a very extreme ideology of Islam, an extreme form of Islam, and you can blame it on Salafism or Wahhabism, mm-hmm. right? But also a whole, you know, host of things that mm-hmm. contributed to that. That's when, you know, we also have a problem with, you know, people who, have taken that ideology, that path. But we also had a problem of people who decided, you know, we will take this path. We may not be militants, we may not be terrorists, but we'll take that hard, that hardline path because mm-hmm. this is the Islam that this country needs. That conversations I've had, you know, I mean, right, with men and women in Malaysia for the last, what, five, ten years? Uh, you know, just when you think that we are still moderate, there are pockets that are also very extreme in their views. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, so I, I know I know exactly what you mean. So, so tell me more about how it has impacted on Malaysian women who you described as becoming more religious as they become more middle class. I think, okay, let's look at this. I wish I had a blackboard, a whiteboard, yeah, and... <laughs> Not I'm bad with math, but if you look at the Venn diagram, right, you'll see that a lot of women who were caught by the police for sympathizing with ISIS or militants online or WhatsApp, right, the majority of these women are curious. They probably contributed, but it's not like thousands. They're rather mm-hmm. poor. Yeah? And they're like, why am I being arrested? I, but I like this Islam. I mean, it's very, it's what you call village Islam. Okay, so mm-hmm. that's one mm-hmm. Then with the influx of foreign preachers coming into Malaysia, and we're not talking about the popular ones like, you know, Mufti Menk and all that. You see, our borders are porous. And if Mm. you're Muslim, it's easy for you to come into the country. So there are many who are here on a visa run. I know this because I have friends who joined this, you know, and you see them changing. And when you say that, you know, that's not the kind of Islam we Malaysians actually believe in. And you say, look, Islam Nusantara is rubbish. This is the real Islam. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it worried me because these women are from the professional class. They've entered the P20 income. And you wonder like, okay, it's good that we're observant of our faith, Amina, right? However imperfect we are, you know, physically, mm-hmm. we turn to Allah, right? But grabbing onto this extreme idea of Islam made me wonder why. Was it peer pressure? Was it because they felt that the Islam they, they studied in Malaysia failed them? What? Mm-hmm. It's a whole gamut of things. But for Lipstick Jihad, I started studying a lot of these women in the professional class. And these are the English-speaking ones, yeah? not the Malay-speaking professional class. Um, I suppose it's the group, you know, and there's always a patron who brings in these foreign teachers, yeah? Mm-hmm. From Indonesia, from Syria, from Africa, 
so it's also like a country club thing, you know. Uh, yeah. It becomes, I, I've seen people change. At the same time, I mean, uh, I don't know whether you attended one webinar where I talked about the rise and rise of far-right uh, nationalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, it, before it was all these men making, you know, going on and on and on. You're seeing women now at the forefront. As you will call them the Malay-speaking professional class, T20 income also, but they speak English and they're very, very highly qualified. They are pushing for that Malay-Muslim narrative. Mm. And if you don't mind me just putting this, you know, like just now, right? Yeah? There's a, a law on the spread of non, um, non-Muslim religions still in the pipeline. That means these groups are actually talking to each other and telling the government that we have to neutralize the presence of non-Muslim mm-hmm. uh, religions and communities in Malaysia. So that was a shift from that ISIS shift, which is still very, very frightening and very scary. And then you have this, which is which feels even more scary because it's homegrown, you know? Uh, it's coming from within, whereas ISIS was more of an external influence on Malaysians. How do I feel about this? Okay, that researcher in me is like, oh my God, why are you doing this? Okay, I'll do all this research. But as a Malaysian, I wonder, Amina, because my parents, right? And I consider my parents very religious. Yeah, they wake up for tahjud, they go to the mosque. Even they are questioning, why is the Islam that we're seeing now so strange? Where is the moderate Islam? Why? Don't uh, listen to the, don't listen to YouTube. Let's just mm-hmm. stick to our Ustad. Mm-hmm. It's just very strange. And I'm just wondering whether in, you know, in the Philippines, you are also experiencing something. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Oh, yeah, uh, most, uh, most definitely. But if we look back to yeah. the growth of extremely fundamentalist interpretation of Islam in Southeast Asia, you can actually correlate the growth with the influx of Islamic missionaries to Uh, our shores Mm -hmm. after the Arab world became rich through OPEC, when they started to control oil their principal resource, and became very rich. They started sending us missionaries, and then they started funding mosques in Madaris all over the world, including Southeast Asia. And at that point, the the Wahhabi brand started to take root. 
Put it this way, Dina. Thirty mm-hmm. years ago, yes, you could count in one hand on your fingers the right. number of women in the Muslim South uh-huh. who wore the niqab okay. or were completely covered, not just with a hijab, but you know, all in black. Today, okay. it's right. common to see women so attired in the Muslim South. So you had that beginning. But mm. after 9-11, when right. Muslims were vilified yeah. by the Western media and they accused our madrasa, our madaris, of being hotbeds of terrorism, of violent extremism, then you also saw the doubling up of a reaction where Muslims in our very moderate Southeast Asia started claim, you know, reclaiming their Islamic self and made it also their identity. And I, I gave worry about, about that situation because I had always been proud of the way we lived in Southeast Asia, that we were people of faith, we practiced our Islam, but we also allowed and let our friends from the other faiths practice theirs and prosper and thought nothing about being friends with people of other faiths. And now the wall is being built around us, and this is not Trump's wall, This is a wall that we are constructing ourselves. And Dina, it's not just us Muslims. I mean, look at what happened in southern Thailand and Myanmar between Mm -hmm. Buddhists and and Muslims, where you have Buddhist monks, for instance, becoming violent. I never thought uh, Buddhist monks could be be violent. So these are scary times, Dina. Oh, yeah. I sometimes, in my quiet times, right, when you look at why, you know, these communities behave the way, you know, I I actually wonder, is it because of lack of resources, you know? But at least when I talk to some extremists, right, political extremists, for them, they live in a nice area, they have a car, they've got savings. So it's not actually about, you know, lack of money. I did think because, you know, we have actually spoken to young people and they also cited the lack of social capital. But when you talk about, you're right, about the Buddhist monks. And no, I'm not an expert on Myanmarese and on the politics of Myanmar. But as an outsider, I wonder like, okay, I understand that it's about land, it's about an identity mm-hmm. you don't need. But at the same time, you know, the little that I've read, right? Where is this fear of the outsider coming from when you are more powerful? Like, if you don't mind me going back to the interviews I've had last year, right? Mm. When people said, we don't mind the pandatangs, outsiders living in Malaysia. Okay? The what, they Dina? Pandatang, outsiders. Oh, I'm a pandatang. Chinese nations, Indian nations, right? They can be rich, but they must realize that we Malays have been here first. Islam and Bahasa Malaysia is our, you know, our identity. Mm-hmm. And I said, all right. But why do you fear them so much when you are the, well, one, demographically, I mean, there's a lot more of us. Two, you have more say in the governance of the country. You're pretty all right if these people are enriching themselves. Mm-hmm. So where is the fear of this outsider? I've not been able to pinpoint this. I mean, and I sometimes I crack my head and go, why? 
But I also think, and this is me being simple, right? I really wonder whether people just let fear overcome them, that it becomes a huge political, you know, identity. But mm-hmm. I'm just being simple here because I still haven't got the answers to this. You know, the late Surin Pitsuan, yeah. who was a good friend, used to tell me, this was before the, the problems in southern Thailand cropped up, he used to yeah. tell me how well we in Muslim Mindanao were yeah. managing our lobby for peace yeah. and our support for the peace process and actually making headway in having the Catholic majority accept our demands for autonomy. And then after the Southern Thailand problems uh, blew up, Surin told me, I said, you know, we in Southern Thailand are where you were 20, 30 years ago. And it occurs to me that when you're talking about extremism, extreme fundamentalism, the shift to right-wing and possibly violent right-wing tendencies, Uh this is something... You're right. It's not something that's exclusively Islamic. Yeah, yeah. It can occur in any community. I mean, come on, Dina, look at the United States. Oh, well, that's what, a good example. Yeah. yeah. What they did yeah. on January 6th yes. and refusing, I mean, the extreme right, refusing yeah. to accept that those people who stormed their capital were right. violent terrorists, yeah. domestic terrorists. I mean, can you believe that some of their political leaders actually said that they were just tourists for right. goodness sake? You know, Amina, I have a question. You know, because here's what someone said to me and something I've been thinking about. That inherently all of us are actually racist, right? Is whether we want to carry it to the extremes or not. You know, and that's probably the root cause of all the problems that we have now. That if we are inherently racist, it doesn't take much to spark off an argument over maybe land, over mm. you know, a job, right? And then, you know, in this world of political correctness and democracy, you know, you, you think to yourself, okay, let's be you know, civilized. But when you do that, you know, when you snap just like that, or something forces you. Then you become that extremist. I don't know. I mean, there's just, I mean, you have been to way more webinars, forums than I have, Amina. We've talked about this from, you know, from time to time to time. What causes us to be like this? To actually embrace ideologies, politics, extremism, which are actually not humane after all. You remember our conversation with the Dr. Evangeline Kua in yes. Fatima Versosa? And Dr. Kua, Bangi Kua, was talking about how the Afghan families in Kunduz were welcoming to them uh, who were with Doctors Without Borders and uh, supportive. And then Ima Versosa agreed and said that the Afghans who had worked with them uh, when she was with USAID in Kabul were the same, but when the men went home to their families, they reverted back 
to a very fundamentalist uh, uh. attitude about Islam and would not allow their wives to to work or their daughters to have ambitions about going to university. And it really occurs to me that our communities have been in many ways so indoctrinated to think that Islam is under attack and the only way we can preserve our community, our way of life, our faith, is by walling ourselves off from influences that can detract from our being good Muslims. But the question is, Dina, what's a good Muslim? You know, yeah, I I still remember. This is doing, I'm sure you know about the 1MDB, right? Um, I mean, uh, oh, yes. So when that time was, you know, and basically the newspaper was pinpointed to this corporate figure, that corporate figure. And I remember I was talking to someone, a cousin, and I said, oh my God, this person, oh, terrible, terrible, corrupt, corrupt. Mm. And this person actually said to me, no, he's a good provider. Oh. He's a good Muslim. And I just had a scratching my head. And the thing is, you see, you're right, Amina. What makes a good Muslim? Who is a good Muslim? When you have certain factions of society saying, well, he may be corrupt, but, you know, he's a good Muslim. He's a good provider. So that's one. Then you have another one where it says that, okay, you have to pray 11 million times a day. You have to have whole extreme ideas of, you know, non-Muslims. Then you're a good Mm. Muslim. You know, I... (laughs) It can be very overwhelming. Who is? I, I, me, we all do try to be good people, right? But unfortunately, I think the world now is only focused on the physical and the rituals. Yes. They don't really want to see what's yep. really happening in your life, you know? <laughs> yep. And I yeah. keep thinking about um, what's happening in the, in the United States. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, take a look at Trump. Yeah. He was heavily supported by the Christian communities in the in the Bible Belt, right? Including very devout women, in spite of the fact that they have caught him on the microphone, right? Saying all of these horrible things about women, in spite of the way he's been treating and migrant workers and the statements that he's made. And yet, he's still supported by this very fundamentalist Christian leaders. So I, what, what's happening in the world that people of faith who are supposed to welcome the community, be peacemakers, yeah. are the ones actually building walls that divide our communities. That I don't, I don't understand. That we don't. I mean, we've been having this podcast. I've been listening and learning to all of you over the years, right? And the work of peace building is very, very important. But I wonder with the way the world is going right now, plus we have a stupid pandemic, right? Mm. Is peace ever going to win? Or are we just like what we Muslims have been taught? That one day the whole was going to be kabush, the end of the world, and we all die and go to heaven or heaven or hell. I don't know. <laughs> you know, sometimes I get you know a bit dramatic in that sense, but it is very, very. You know, we all have these conversations. 
the, the work we do is very, very important. The work we do helps communities, but is it impactful? Will extremism will always will it always be there? I think. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I think it's always going to be there. The root will always be there. But I think at the end of the day, women yeah. in any right. community are going right. to take a look at their families yeah. and think, what can I do? to protect my family and their future. And at that point, women dig deep into themselves and bring out the bravery and the will needed to move on, to push on. And you know, this is not something that's a theoretical, Dina. You and I, you've seen... You've seen this in our communities, whether in the Kampung of Malaysia or the barangays of Muslim yeah. Mindanao. We've seen this in how our friends became champions in their, in their communities, working for peace, working for human right. rights. It's because at the end of the day, a woman thinks more about her family rather than herself. And the yes. only way to secure the family is to make sure that there's a peaceful foundation where you can live happily and, and dream. You know, yes. Sanam said something um, right. when we interviewed her. Um, she's, she said, certainly we need the war makers present to agree to end the violence, but to right. make peace, you must bring the peacemakers, and those are the women. Yeah. Oh, I mean, uh, you know, can we just go back to the paper you wrote, right? I mean, I know you say it's an old paper, but it's still very, very relevant to the work we do, and the research is still being done, yeah? Yeah. When you pulled out that paper, and I'm sure you must have looked through just a bit, you know, glanced through it, right? What hasn't been done by civil society organizations or agencies since that paper you wrote till now that could have actually sorted out a lot of things? You know, Dina, I cannot fault civil society yeah. because for one, we yeah. are the sector who does a lot of backbreaking work, but mm -hmm. with so few resources. I think the failure has really been in our governments, our regional organizations, and multilateral and bilateral organizations. Let me take a look at what the UN and other aid and development organizations 
put as a priority. They prioritize peace building and conflict resolution. They prioritize women, the empowerment of women and girls. And then when you look at their programming, it's so tiny. And when Mm -hmm. you look further at where the money goes, it goes to, you know, big conferences and not much goes towards the capacity building of the women who are at the community level in conflict-affected areas who need all of these resources to strengthen themselves and to push for for their advocacies for peace. So I cannot really fault civil society and people's organizations. They're they're trying so hard. I mean, take a look at you and Ruby and Humcorn. What What do women do? We try to link up. And you have linked up trying to bring women peace builders in Southeast Asia together. And now you have the Southeast Asia Peace Builders Network. That's what we women do. We network. I think, well, we can talk about Southeast Asian Women Peace Builders another day, right? But I do feel that right now I'm teasing everyone with the membership forms. You're in already, so is Emma. (laughs) But the rest, you know, it's like, okay, just send me your logos and I still am cheesing. But uh, I think that it's not just a network. I mean, I mean, I know everyone's busy. You're busy with the Philippines. We're busy with Malaysia, right? But there is something I wish all of us can do together and we can apply this in our respective countries. And I want it to be go, go beyond webinars, you know, mm. because I think the real work is when you put your feet on the ground. Yeah. You know, at the, at the end of the day, when yeah. you look at us in civil society, we have to continuously fight to halt the shrinking of the space within yes. which we operate. Because like it or not, in the Muslim world, democracy is getting a very, very bad reputation. You know, after 9-11, and yeah. this is true, Dina, in Washington, D.C., I actually saw a car with a bumper sticker that Uh said, uh, be careful or I will democratize you. It was was a threat. And and I think maybe the West, one of their failures is in realizing that democracy has to be homegrown. We have to want it. It has to be a democracy that suits our culture, our systems, our faith, and then move slowly from that point. Otherwise, you know, they will think that the Americans coming here and threatening, I will democratize you. (laughs) You know, on that note, right? Okay, we've got about another 10 more minutes, I think. <laughs> On that note, we didn't talk about that. I don't know again about, um, about the Philippines, but I know in Malaysia, 
there's been a huge, huge spike of people expressing anti-colonization sentiments. They're bringing up academic books, history books. You see, mm. this is why we have this. Islam that we have, it was created by the British when they brought the Salafi, Wahhabi, etc., etc., right? So because of that, that, that pushback against our colonial masters, and I'm not saying they haven't done any good. They did some, okay? I try to be positive about everything. Mm. But it has also created an extreme part. Everything that's wrong, you know, we have to be Malaysian or pro-Malay for this. And you're going, right. okay, I am not saying that our colonial masters, the British, the Portuguese, the Dutch, the, even the Japanese, you know, were 100% good. There was a lot of evil done on this mm-hmm. land. But this pushback, while to researchers and historians, it will be very interesting to observe this. But for people who work in civil society, seeing this, a different kind of narrative, you know, which is actually quite extreme. It's not healthy. Yep. And it's also coming from within the communities. Yeah. Yeah. That is absolutely right. You know, my yeah. mother always said that the the chain is as good as its weakest link. And if the weakest link exists in our community and it is being exploited by those with very extremist uh, tendencies, then I think those of us who are working on preserving our rights, making sure that we continue to be empowered in a democratic space so that we can have a peaceful foundation for our communities, it is up to us really to look at those weak links. And it could be different from community to community and see what can what can be done. And I'm telling you, Dina, there is no sector more effective yeah. at doing something about that weak link in the community than the women of the community. We need to bring out and mentor more and more young activists, yes. women activists. Yes. I think there will be a day you and I will be, you know, saying, okay, we are done. We're going off to a little <laughs> farm or something, right? Yes. But there is the thing is, a lot of people think when it comes to peace building, activism, one, there's very little money, which is kind of true, but at the same time, they don't see it as a career path. It's voluntary. Mm-hmm. So that's something we have to talk about. But Anina, you and I are going to be in a, uh, in a working workshop with, I think, Ibu Ruby, mm-hmm. yeah, on the 23rd or 22nd, I think. Yes. So uh, we can talk about that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Commissioner Bing Guanzon of the Philippine Commission on Election, and Dr. Socorro Reyes, who is a feminist champion of the Philippines and very, very expert lobbyist in our Congress. Both of them stressed how important it is for women to be represented and uh, to participate in the political process. Because if we're not present at that table, then it is easy to just push us aside, which is such a terrible and short-sighted thing to do because study upon study have shown that if you let women in and you let them participate, then what you have, whether it is an agreement or whether it is a development program, it becomes yeah. more sustainable. So, Dina, yes. 
you have to educate the men in <laughs> Malaysia. And oh, I'm going yeah. to try and reach out to the men in the Philippines and tell them that they have to be pragmatic and bring women to the table. What do you think? Can we do that? That will be our lipstick jihad, Dina. I think that's a fantastic idea. So we'll have <laughs> to start bringing a few men in. Adrian was fantastic, but we're going to get one or two more to balance yes. out the gender balance in our podcast. Oh, most definitely. We can't oh, do yeah. this without the men. <laughs> Amina, I believe uh, time has come up. Oh, dear. You know? Yeah, this has been really a great conversation yeah. with you. We really should be doing this regularly. Just having sure. a conversation between you and me and we can think back about all of those fabulous women and men that we have had yeah. as guests and see how they can help us in our future yes. work for our advocacies. Yeah. So um, let's hope that 20 years after 9-11, that you and I can really try and strengthen the weak links in, uh, in our community. Meanwhile, okay. this is Amina Rasul thanking everyone for listening to us at She Talks Peace. And this is Dina from Kuala Lumpur, Iman Research Malaysia. We hope you enjoyed our little chat today. We've got a few more. You know, we're going to have exciting lineups almost every week. Yep. So keep going with us. Bye. Bye. She Talks Peace is brought to you in partnership with Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics, the easiest way to monetize your podcast. For more information, check out their website at podcastnetwork.asia and podmetrics.co. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. <laughs>